Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 508 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing, publishing, and how you can succeed as an author or writer. So what have you been up to this week? Well, for me, right about the time you're listening to this, I will actually be on the island of Kona in Hawaii. Uh, And that's because I'm one of the mentors and facilitators at a conference of amazing women who are keen to take their passions and interests to another level. I love working with people who are keen to make a difference in their own lives. So I know there's going to be some fantastic outcomes from this retreat. I particularly love it when those people are writers. And that's why I really, really enjoy facilitating and mentoring all of the members of the Freelance Writing Masterclass program, because they are an incredible group of people who want to take their freelance writing to the next level. But I digress. Uh, I am in Hawaii and, you know, who could not love Hawaii, right? Land of Hawaii Five-O, Magnum PI, um, Jurassic Park, Barack Obama. Um, I am uh, only, I've only just got here, but um, I'm sure I have a lot to tell you by the next episode. So let's move on to something I've been thinking about. What do you do once you've finished writing a manuscript that involves heaps and heaps and heaps of research? You know, some historical novels or some novels that are set potentially in other countries or um, amidst uh, a lot of issues-based topics. What do you do when you do heaps and heaps of research? It can be heartbreaking to just bundle up all that research and never look at it again. So maybe what I've been noticing is that smart authors are doing is that they have been repurposing that research. Now, repurposing content is very common on websites and in content writing, but there's no reason you can't apply the same principles to fiction or historical fiction or memoir or whatever. Of course, I don't mean to actually repurpose the actual words that you've done. You know, you don't repurpose your fiction writing. Uh, You don't reuse your story. I'm referring specifically to the hours and hours, or even months and months in some cases, in some cases years and years, of research that you did when you were researching the background or the setting or the events or the characters in your novel. So, for example, if you're writing a historical fiction book set in Algeria in World War II, you can take some of your extensive research and write a freelance article about an important event or a profile piece or an anniversary of a historical event or a fascinating person or something like that. People love history. Or you can share bits and pieces from your research on your blog or website or on social media. You could even make a YouTube or Instagram story describing something you found in love but maybe couldn't include in your novel but it's still fascinating. Not only will you be sharing your passion and knowledge about that subject and those themes and so on, you'll also be demonstrating your credibility and hopefully getting a few new readers, especially if when you get when you publish and submit that freelance article, you include the name of your novel in your bio or byline. So yeah, don't let your research go to waste. Now let's move on to our competition this week. 
you could win one of three copies of The Whitewash by Siang Lu. I have three copies to give away and there is no one better to tell you about the novel than Siang himself. Hello listeners of the So You Want to Be a Writer podcast. This is Siang Lu, author of The Whitewash. The Whitewash is the story of a James Bond-like AAA blockbuster Hollywood spy thriller starring, for the first time in cinematic history, an Asian male lead. Uh, the book's hero of sorts is JK Jr., who I've described as not the sharpest tool in the shed, but probably the hottest. Uh, everything's going great guns for JK Jr. He beats out thousands of hopefuls for the part by doing a bit of a reverse Sharon Stone. I won't say any more about that. Uh, and he's got the entire world at his feet. Well, that is until he gets replaced by a white actor. Just one of the many fiascos that occur in this satire, which includes a fool's gallery of actors, producers, directors, film historians, and a scummy team of journalists known for rooting around in celebrities' rubbish bins to get their dirty scoops, clickbait. Uh, at the same time, the whitewash also tells the not-so-hilarious history of whitewashing of Asian roles and faces in cinema. From Fu Manchu in the 1920s, to Scarlett Johansson in the Ghost in the Shell remake, uh, to everything in between. And the book's written in an oral history format, and it's peppered with dumb jokes and film history galore. If you enjoy George Saunders's Lincoln in the Bardo, and Charles Yu's Interior Chinatown, you may find a kindred literary spirit in The Whitewash. I hope you enjoy reading it as much as I enjoyed writing it. There you go, direct from the author. So for your chance to win one of three copies of The Whitewash by Siang Lu, just go to writercenter.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 31st of October. But if you go to that URL in the future, don't worry, there'll be another fantastic competition there for you to enter. So that's writercentre.com.au slash win. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? The word of the week this week is penumbra. That's P, P for Polly, P-E-N-U-M-B-R-A, penumbra. What does it mean? Well, a penumbra is the partial or imperfect shadow that you see just outside a complete shadow, where a little bit of light is just coming through. And it comes from the Latin literally meaning almost shadow. Now, according to Wikipedia, because I'm sure you all want to know all about shadows, the umbra, the penumbra, and antumbra are three distinct parts of a shadow created by any light source after impinging on an opaque object. So they're often associated with the kinds of shadows that are cast by celestial bodies. But according to the Merriam-Webster dictionary, it's also defined as, penumbra is also defined as something that covers, surrounds, or obscures. So to use that in a sentence, you might say a penumbra of secrecy or a penumbra of somber dignity has descended over his reputation. So there you go, penumbra, and that was the word of the week. 
If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like the book that Alison Tate and I have written together called So You Want to Be a Writer, How to Get Started While You Still Have a Day Job. Full of practical tips, motivation and inspiration, it's ideal for anyone who's thinking of dipping their toes into the wonderful world of writing. We've created a blueprint for aspiring writers to follow and it's suitable regardless of whether you want to plunge straight into this new career or if you need to explore it while you're still busy in your day job. Let us hold your hand as you turn your dream into a reality. Buy your copy today at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au forward slash book. So let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Lee Kaufman is a writer and memoirist whose books include The Dangerous Bride, Imperfect, and her latest, The Writer Laid Bare. Hey, Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my absolute pleasure, Valerie. Your book, The Writer Laid Bare. Wow, what a read. <laughs> now, for people who haven't got their hands on a copy yet, can you tell us what it's about? Yes, of course. So um, it's kind of, uh, it's hard a bit to classify, but it's a part um, memoir, part uh, writing guide, I would say. But it's not a kind of guide of, you know, like five steps to creating your best-selling novel. It's not so sort of structured. It's more um, really um, a book where I use the concept of emotional honesty to explore how can writers best to work out what kind of writing process works for them because it's so individual mm. and I think um, emotional honesty I use so emotional honesty is a concept that really tied, ties up this whole book the subtitle is uh, mastering emotional honesty in the writer's art craft and life and my point is there that we really need to be to use emotional honesty in terms of self-awareness so what works for us but also to be emotionally honest on the page and I offer in this book some tools of how to try and write really uh, with nuance and with um, depth about the word. So to write about the word as it is, as opposed to as we want it to be. And then lastly, mm. also looking at this book, at something that I think we sometimes overlook, which is writer's life, how we live our private lives and how these lives can be sometimes either overtaken by writing or uh, sometimes they're not conducive enough to the writing life. So I'm just looking at sort of interface between the two and how to be honest also about the choices that we do in our private lives to have children, how we parent children, um, our relationships, our friendships, things like this. So you talk about uh, emotional honesty and you and, and definitely it's kind of obvious to people that if you're writing, let's say, memoir, nonfiction memoir, that um, emotional honesty is an essential part of that. What about when people are writing fiction? Sure. Well, I just want to say first that actually from my experience of mentoring a lot of memoirists and, and uh, teaching a lot of memoir and writing memoir myself, I think honesty in memoir is a very interesting concept. Emotional honesty is not necessarily something that a lot of memoirists are aware of. So it's mm -hmm. not an honesty about it about facts that that people sort of know. Yes, we are writing about our lives, and we have to be honest about what really happened to us. But I'm thinking, for me, emotional honesty is really about the truth of the story, the deeper truth of the story. So, for example, uh, for me, an emotionally honest memoir, if a memoir, let's say, is about motherhood. So I'm less concerned about the exact facts of how many 
uh, you know, how many times a day uh, the mother's having breakdowns over, you know, spilled porridge or whatever else is happening. What I'm really interested to know in such a memoir where emotional honesty would come for me into it is how has being a mother would shape the writer, would have shaped the writer? Why do they make the choices they make, the decisions they make in how they parent? Um, what it means to have a children generally for this person. So it's really, it's about deep reflection. So in memoir, um, honesty for me, doesn't sort of equal straight away emotional honesty. There's the factual and the emotional. With fiction, I think it's completely the same thing because to me, really, um, fiction and memoir, they come from the same as the, the spring from the same well, they come from, they're both artworks and they're both about really psychological landscapes. They're both about what it's like to be a human and often they're about issues as well. And so when we write fiction, I think um, you can, to me, I can just feel when I read an emotionally honest short story or, or novel, it's the kind of work that looks at life again as it is. I'm thinking about Chekhov here, who I really, really love. And he talks about how, a writer, in his view, should be like a chemist. He uses medical metaphors because he's a doctor. He was a doctor. Um, so a writer says Chekhov should be like a chemist for whom nothing is unclean. And when you look at his short stories, they're really truly emotionally honest because it doesn't matter what bad things his characters may do, you still always see the humanity. You see the darker sides, but you, you see the lighter sides and this, uh, the more beautiful sides about them. And you, uh, and this is to me emotionally honest fiction when when the writers don't try to Photoshop things. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love that description. So you were originally from Russia, and then you grew up, or you moved to Israel, and then years later you moved to Australia. <laughs> and um, you say that you've always wanted to be a writer, always wanted to write. Did you know early on whether you wanted to write memoir or fiction or you didn't care at that point when you were younger? This is a great question because I actually, this is really funny, but I actually did not know much about the genre of memoir or creative nonfiction generally until I was in my early 30s because it just wasn't a thing. When I was uh, studying as a writer in Israel, uh, it was in the early 1990s, late 1990s, then through the 1990s, it, it was in Israel, the, the kind of the genre of creative nonfiction memoir didn't sort of trickle into then yet into that country. So it's, it's not like the memoir boom that we had in America, you know, it started in the late 80s. We didn't have it. So I just intuitively wrote fiction because I thought that's what writers do. They just write fiction. So I wrote three fiction books in Hebrew. But all of these fiction books were very deeply autobiographical for me, even though find, uh, the second book, for example, a collection of short stories and novella was mostly narrated by different male characters. But every male characters I had expressed some kind of anxiety, some kind of issue that I had, some kind of problem that I wanted to explore for these characters. Like I had, for example, a frustrated journalist who, who felt he was he came from sort of like a very poor suburbs as I did at the time and didn't have the same intellectual, um, you know, advantages and beginnings like some of his other colleagues. And so, so there's so many... So many ca- male characters were actually me. And then when I came to Australia, things happened by default, very accidentally. So I saw a Griffith Review was looking for essays on a topic that really spoke to me, which is networks, so social networks. And as a migrant, but I was that I was really still quite new to Australia. 
social networks were everything for me then to to sort of you know i was really trying to to find my fit here i was looking for those networks and so it was very natural for and i had no idea what griffith's review was such a prestigious publication otherwise i would have never tried but i just <laughs> sent him an email saying can i can i write an essay about how i'm be i'm sort of uh, the, the kind of Russian migrants that I met in Australia and how I found myself among them. And, and I said, yeah, sure. And th- that was my first essay. And when I wrote it, it felt really natural to me writing this way. So I've never read many essays before. I I um, didn't know much about the genre, but something about this genre really spoke to me. It was a personal essay. And I really loved that you could, that I could um, just really not use all this heavy machinery of, of fiction to express my ideas, but I could just say things as they were and use research if I wanted or create a scene if I wanted. And I kind of fell in love with that genre. And then I ended up, as you know, Valerie, writing the next five books all creating on fictions. So. Yes. So you discover the genre of memoir and this book in itself is called The Writer Laid Bare because the thing is when you are writing memoir, you do lay bare many things. With fiction, you can hide behind characters, a story that you can say is not yours and so on. And the me- in the memoirs that you have written in the past, they you have <laughs> laid bare a lot of stuff about your life. Was that an easy thing to do? Were you hanging to get it out there? Some people just want to tell, some, tell, tell their story. Or was it very difficult to, to put on paper and share with the world? It was difficult. So I'm by nature, I'm a listener more than a talker, even if it not may not seem like this now when I'm talking to you. <laughs> I'm talking to you about things I'm really passionate about, so it's easy for me to talk. But no, I, I definitely didn't want to tell the world about my experience of non-monogamy, for example, or about my, and my second, that was my first memoir, The Dangerous Bride. And in my second memoir, Imperfect, I, I actually reveal my scars. I have a lot of scars on my body and I look at how our appearance can shape our lives. And these scars, I've hidden for so many years. It was completely unnatural to me to actually expose myself in this way. In fact, most of my close friends have never seen my scars. Um, And I don't usually talk until I wrote this book and now I talk them to death, but until I wrote (laughs) it. I never, I never talked about them um, unless just mentioning something in, in passing. Um, so um, no, it's not natural for me to to expose it publicly, but it's very natural for me to do it on paper because for me, writing is, I suppose, I don't write for therapy, but it does work this way somehow. I think I saved so many, so much money, uh, but I could have used it for therapists, you know, because I wrote my problems. <laughs> on the paper. Once I sort of write them and I pin them down, they they more mostly leave me alone. But <laughs> but um I, I wrote both of these books with a lot, a lot, a lot of um anxiety and doubts. And I think it actually was good for those books because I think uh, and I'm not saying they're good books, but I think I did my best with them because the anxiety that was generated inside me as I was writing, as I was doubting, made me more self, self-critical, made me sort of be on my toes and not just write things, blah, but actually think about them really deeply. And I think it also injected some energy, I hope so at least, into the writing. I do think that if um, if a writer doesn't worry about what they write, then the reader won't worry either about it. They won't be- <laughs> 
when the stakes are high, you can, I think it's it's important when you write, not, not just me, but anybody, I think the stakes have to be high, whether it's fiction or memoir, I don't think it really matters, actually. Mm. So you say that you've probably saved a lot of money in therapy, which yeah. I completely understand because writing can is very cathartic and it's a very therapeutic process. And in this book, you do mention that you it helps you understand the world. It helps you understand your relationship with the world. It helps you understand you know, um, your emotions and what you're going through. You also, as you say, uh, I mean, it is called The Writer Laid Bare. So you talk about the writer's life and you do talk about that it's difficult. Um, You know, there are some words that you use like bloodshed. It's something that's pulled out of your guts. (laughs) There's, you know, torture chambers like your writing desk. So I have to ask. So obviously, I mean, of course, you talk about um, some of the positives of writing as well. But the process, those are the sorts of words that you use and it seems very um, Mm -hmm. angst-ridden. So if that's, and, and obviously that's your experience, and if that's the case with you, is it worth it? Like, should you maybe, you know, do something else? And I'm I'm glad you haven't done something else because you're a beautiful writer. I mean, you write beautifully, but it's 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 stressful to know what you're going through. So have have you thought, oh, this is so stressful, maybe I should do something else? All the time, constantly. <laughs> Thanks, Valerie. Um, and, and I also must say that, you know, being Jewish, I'm, I'm very melodramatic already. So. <laughs> when I write those descriptions, but no, writing it has always been really hard for me. You don't know how many times I thought to myself, I wish I was a visual artist because visual are probably romanticizing and they probably find it very difficult too. But, you know, visual art always seems to me so much healthier because you use your body, you move around you can do it in collaboration or sometimes I want I think maybe I should be a chef because I love cooking but yes definitely but but why do I write I have in fact my first chapter in the book and one of the longest chapters in the book is why why do I write look I think like all best things in life for me at least again maybe that's my melodrama personal melodrama but for me all the best things I've ever done and I include here falling in love, being a parent, you know, everything, that sort of stuff, teaching, I shall really love, um, and writing, of course. They're always terrifying and wonderful at once. So I think it's just my sort of uh, cross to bear. But um, if, if I was sort of to think, to summarize it uh, as succinctly as I can why I write, is because for me, writing probably serves as a kind of it, it sounds very pretentious, but it really is, does work for me this way. It's, it's a metaphysical kind of thing for me. So I think writing serves for me a function with religion, serves for others, some other people. It explains life to me. It, mm. that I, I, work, I work my uh, stuff through, through writing. I understand the world better. And also, because I'm a very sort of scattered person, I've done so many different things that kind of don't sit together. I migrated twice. I changed my hair color all the time. I, I did too many degrees and things I did in very different things, you know, social sciences, social social work, writing, all sorts of things. 
I've, I've had lots of different so-called careers from, from running nightclubs to, uh, you know, to <laughs> even stitching, you know, frying burgers, whatever. Um, so writing has always been the only really constant in my life. It's, uh, it's something that um, I started writing very young when I was probably about eight. And it really, it's a bit like a, like a thread that ties me together, holds me intact. Mm. And and the and the last thing I'll say is that you know how people, religious people, spiritual people, talk about reaching nirvana or you know all sorts of experiences of sublime. As much as writing difficult for me, uh, when the, those moments when I come and it flows, and especially during revision, which is the part of writing absolute mm. love, in those moments I probably come as close as possible to sublime. It gets better even than sex. <laughs> <laughs> wow okay <laughs> I like how you describe you say there there's kind of two different writers there's the ones who really love the first draft and then the ones where you fall into who <laughs> love the redrafting mm. why do you love the re- like I I probably fall into the former why do you love the redrafting it's because uh, Valerie I'm less adventurous than you are <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think no, so. No. In writing, in writing, seriously, I it's it's, it's insecurity. I absolutely hor- terrified. That, that's where the terror comes mostly from from the, bl- the the blank page. I just never think that I have it in me to write the whole story. And so for me, so so I, I often to to get started on the first draft, and I'm 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 including here even like short pieces that I write, even six hundred board pieces that I sometimes get commissioned to write. <laughs> terrified so sometimes I would even plagiarize from myself and copy and paste something that I've already written on the page just so that it sits there and I think oh I've got already some material to work with and I'll you know I'll take it out later but uh, I hate it but then there because I think also I being an anxious person as I am I always think about where I need to get at the end when the page is blank. But once I've written something, what I've written my really bad first draft. And, you know, I edit, I work as an editor as well and mentor, and I see a lot of first drafts, and mine are among the worst that I see, seriously. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. Once I've got this really bad first draft, it's like I've got my material, I've got my clay, and now I can relax and do what I really love because I don't really love telling the story, as in, you know, step by step. But I really love once the stories there start making meaning out of it. I'm a bit like a detective looking for clues. What did I really mean here? What does it all mean? Why did I write it? What is it saying? And I really love language. So then I, the revision process for me is when I'm a renovator. I call it builders and renovators, builders, the writers who build the story in the first draft. And then I'm the renovator. I'm the kind of person who likes to say, oh, okay, well, this window should be a bit bigger or I think this wall would be better in, you know, in a purple color or whatever it is. I, this is when I, when I, especially when I come to the stage where I start crafting the sentences themselves and contemplate such urgent matters, should the dress be lilac color or, you know, or beautiful antique pink, like what you're wearing now, you know, <laughs> what would be better? That's, that's sort of my fun. And I guess sometimes you might think there shouldn't be a window there at all. I'm going to take it out. Yeah. All the time. I cut forwards. Actually, that's the other thing. Because I'm so anxious about first drafts, Valerie, I override obscenely. It's a normal, it's a very normal practice. And I write very quick. So I... I think through writing. So and that's why I think it's also so difficult for me to create first drafts because I 
if I plan too much, it's, it loses the, the story loses the mystery for me. It's not interesting for me to write anymore. So, but I need to write a lot and to understand what I'm doing. So it, it's a normal practice for me, but in my later, later drafts, I would take out maybe, I don't know, 30 to 40,000 words. Wow. What I've written. Wow, that's a lot. Okay. <laughs> you talk about these four tenets, which I really like. Um, the first one is write about what is urgent. What's your definition of what is urgent? Can you describe to people what you mean by that tenet? Sure. Um, of course. Um, so uh, urgency, it's something like, so it's it's about really what, what needs to come out. I really don't believe that um, writers would do their best if they will clinically and intellectually choose the subjects. I think some of the best books that I've read, and you know, I often read about writers' processes and how, how they come to, to um, write the books. My best friend is... Uh, Paris Review interviews volumes. I just love those volumes. You know, it's like in-depth interviews with writers. And it seems to be just from all the research I've done and from what I've noticed from my work as a teacher and my own practice that uh, really, as I said, best books come when the subject is is just, you just know you need to get it out. Like, I, as I said before, I did not want to write about my scars. I did not want to write about my non-monogamous relationships. Um, but it was stuff that was really pressing from inside and I just had to get it out. So... So I think um, I think one of the wonderful things that a writer can do for themselves in terms of urgency is uh, not to rush to write a book after book after book or story after story if they don't have something that they really want to say. But actually, to it's I think it's it can be a good idea for some of us to wait a little bit sometimes between um, between, between works and just get the sense of what is it that we really want to tell. And often, and this relates to the four tenants, one of mm. the other tenants is write what makes you blush. Often, this urgency may manifest as discomfort, as something. We, I'm not talking about tra- trauma. I think when we, if we feel traumatized about a particular topic and if we feel writing about feel really hurt us, I would actually suggest not to do that, both for personal reasons, but also because probably there's not enough distance between the subject and and the writer yet. But if it just makes us uncomfortable because we want to be liked and think of highly, <laughs> then I think we should push through these barriers and, and go for that. that subject. And, and be uncomfortable. Yes, absolutely. I actually, just very quickly on this topic, um, I actually really love what uh, the Norwegian author Carl of Knosgaard has to say about it. He coined the word shame or meter, like barometer. Oh, yes. you know? so he, he said he said that he's he sort of, uh, it's, if he feels shame about something, that's his uh, that's his indicator that there is good literary material there. So it's not mm. easy to be a writer, absolutely. That's partly why it's so hard. So on that, I was uh, mentoring a writer the other day and she wanted to write a particular subject about her family and it was uncomfortable and I said, you need to write it first as if no one's going to read it except for you. And that was a useful exercise for her um, because it helped her make sense, helped her understand what she was trying to say. However, even though that's a very good technique, then there are a lot of people who, yes, it helps them understand, they're still not going to put their name to it. But memoirists they put their name to it right they they write into the discomfort and then it's out there for the whole world to read 
Is that something that you're just used to now and you're you're really comfortable with that or do you still struggle with everyone's going to read about all these things that are, I've never told anyone? Yes, of course. First of all, you gave this this uh, writer really good advice. It's uh, it's so true. Yeah, the first draft mm. is so important. If you don't have this sort of heartbeat of the re- real real feelings, real you know details and everything, what can you do in the next draft? Mm. Um, but yeah, so the question is the question is about my personal discomfort at other people reading my story, or is it about other people? With is it now that you've written several memoirs, you see, when it's it's, it's a really hard when you write your first one, but after you've written uh, a few, okay, is it yeah, like yeah, okay, uh, I know I'm just going to be comfortable for one second instead of three months? You know what I mean? <laughs> no, it, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't no, it doesn't get much easier for me because of I um look writing about scars, which was my second memoir, was much harder for me actually than than disclosing my bedroom life. Really? Yeah, yeah, and for for a variety of reasons that I can talk about for an hour, which I won't do, of course. But uh, <laughs> you know, I've talked so much about imperfect already. There's uh, yeah, scars have been really bound to my sort of identity, just as writing is so. Um, yeah, and I have lots of them. It's not just one or two scars. So um, no, it's, it doesn't get easier because I think I'm. As soon as I sort of handled one territory, I go into another. Ter- Every time I go in some territory to write a book, I feel quite uncomfortable about it. And look, even the writer laid bare. It's not as uncomfortable book for me as you know my other books were. But uh, it's still I talk a lot about uh, my own shortcomings as a writer there, mostly actually. You know, it's it's also hard to sort of lay yourself bare in this way. So, what's your advice then to writers who? They've now got it out there. They've written about what's urgent. They've written about what what's made them blush, but they cannot take the next step. What what can you what advice can you give them in order to get their writing out there in the world? Okay, that's a very good question. Two two things probably mostly. One is uh, in my experience, once a writer um, really brought what mattered to them, were honest on the page, polished it, made it into an artwork, not just sort of like a therapeutic kind of uh, thing. Um, I think I find it's, we, we kind of, we kind of grow more courageous, more prepared to defend the work. So we'll still be blushing, but uh, it, it, we just have more at stake to, to, you know, it's a bit like when you have your children to, to protect you, you get more, uh, you know, zinc suddenly. Um, uh, and, and that more adrenaline. And the other thing is, um, I think for me, a lot of my discomfort with showing my stuff to the world is, is that, you know, I think I want people to think, to like me, to think I'm a nice person, but you, you put in, you remember all your flaws and bad behavior, you know, stuff like that. But then I kind of reframed it over the years in my mind. And I think now that it's also, I'm not talking about myself, but generally about good mem- about memories. It's actually very generous to to show that you're imperfect to the world, you know, because who is perfect? Mm. <laughs> I used to work in mental health. I'm a social worker, but a training, you know, and I, I never met many perfect people once they're not in a counseling session with you. Um, and I think it's very generous to, to, uh, because once you sort of expose your flaws, so many readers will come and say, well, actually, you know, I always felt like this, but I never told anybody, or I once did it too. And, you know, now I know that somebody else did it too, and I'm not such a bad person. So I think a lot of memories get with the responses along those lines. Mm-mm. And I like that first explanation that ultimately 
if you've created a work of art, you actually, it, it exists on its own anyway and you want to get it out there. I love that. Okay, so finally, what now, You we may have covered some of these in your tenants, but I always end with, with um, what are your top three writing tips for people who would like to be in a position where you are one day? So what would your advice, what would your three pieces of advice be to them? Okay, so um, that's a good question too. So only three. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can do um, more. <laughs> I think one is to not do what I did. So I, all my life, up until about maybe 15 years ago, I put my writing as my one of my last priorities. Mm. And I did, it, I did it out of fear because to fail in writing is to, for me, it was like to fail as a person. Um, so, so really this is sounds so trivial, but to be a writer, you actually have to sit and write and prioritize it. So I really think, so that's one. And then second tip relates to the first one. Uh, it's not enough just prioritizing your writing, but I think from everything I've experienced as a teacher and as a practitioner myself, that what really counts in finishing a book um, is um, you're severing, I mean, given that, you know, it's the book, you're writing the book, you need to write and you have talent. What what really counts is if you, not if you put loads and loads of hours into this every week, but if you do it uh, frequently. So I think frequently, like with, mm. any, like with gym exercise, whatever, counts much more than, um, you know, like how many writing hours you do at once. So it's not, it's really not, not as effective to, clear one day a week to write it's much more effective to write for one hour five times a week um because right. a big very big and I, i'm glad you so you think like this too Valerie? Mm, absolutely yeah, yeah right the gym example is the perfect analogy yeah yeah and also because i think i mean even your science neuroscientific research into creativity shows that a very big part of our um, creativity happens in our subconscious and uh, if we in touch with the work frequently we actually write much more than that one hour in front of the screen yes refer to us we'll be taking notes yeah you know what it's like and the last thing I would say is um, to be a good writer I think we need to develop um, real relationship with the prose itself and um, to think about the sentences we create as just as important element as a character or plot because going back to this idea of the subconscious um a lot of the time when we say oh i really love that writer or i really love that that writer, i really dislike that particular writer what we often are talking about without even realizing is we instinctively relate to their voice to the texture and flavor of their prose and that's why when you're a really good writer, not everybody's going to like you because some, like with very strong things, very distinct things, some people will respond to this type of prose and others don't. But um, but you want to be the kind of person who nobody, because you don't want to be beige, but everybody kind of will say, oh, you're nice, but nobody will buy your books. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think writers really need to develop um, a very intimate and personal relationship with language, such as I'll just give one example so it doesn't so sound so mm. up and I'll end there. Um, to note what words we love and what words we dislike and not to use the words we dislike if we can avoid it because then it'll uh, sound much more like ourselves and develop much more distinct voice. So, for example, I hate the word comment. Don't ask me why. It's a sensual thing. It's not a... <laughs> So I don't mind when other people say it, but it's just very unnatural for me to to write it or to comment. You 
Yeah, I know. Ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> intimate relationship with language. Can you can you believe it? And it's a very common word. Whereas I really love the word strawberries. And I don't necessarily like even eating strawberries, but I love the words. <laughs> I love that. Okay, fantastic. Great pieces of advice. And um, congratulations on your latest book, The Writer Laid Bear. Um, beautiful writing. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today, Lee. Thank you very much for having me, Violet. It was fantastic. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writer Centre and our course, Freelance Writing Stage 1. If you want to be a freelance writer, our course is the fastest way to get there. Step by step, you'll explore how to get story ideas, approach editors, research and structure your articles, plus learn how to conduct interviews, understand industry expectations and much more. And you'll have your very own tutor to answer all your questions. Graduate Fiona Murphy did just that, and she's been published in The Guardian, The Saturday Paper, and Mianjin, among many others. She's also released her beautifully written memoir, The Shape of Sound. When I read about this course, it sounded like such a straightforward way of gaining experience. The courses are incredibly practical and you come away with a set of skills and resources and tools to actually hit the ground running. It's the most supportive learning environment I've ever been a part of. Before I knew it, my story started to be published in these glossy magazines and newspapers. If it wasn't for the Australian Writer Centre, I don't think I would have a career as a freelance writer. It's honestly changed my life. No matter where you live, you can do this course online. If you'd like to find out more, go to writercentre.com.au slash freelance writing. Thank you for joining me on this episode. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Lee Kaufman. I always think it's incredibly brave to write memoir, and it's something that I just don't think I have the guts to do. Personally, I'm far more comfortable telling other people's stories. Anyway, I'm going to say aloha and mahalo from over here in Hawaii this episode. Uh, If you want to connect with me on social media to see what I'm up to, please do feel free. I am on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie Koo. That's K-H-O-O. I'm also over at ValerieKoo.com where you'll get a peek at my other life. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.